0: Warning! This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for adult content. Nil Desperandum 28 War by Sandra Jensen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another issue of Nil Desperandum. Thank you once again for listening. Our main fiction today is the short story War by Sandra Jensen. We also have Adam Gauntlet returning with another installment from his bookshelf. But first up, I have an interview with J. Michael Shell. Michael has the distinction of being, to date, our most prolific author, starting with An Occidental Brook of the Dead, which was heard back on Nil Desperandum 4, as well as the autobiography of God, heard in Nil Desperandum eighteen, and of course Preacher Porter's Cure, which completed in our last issue. Michael, thank you for joining me.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Well, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> if we get into everything, we'll probably be here for hours. So uh, we'll try not to <clears throat> try not to go too far down that road. Um, But first, I I have to say a special thank you, because when we first started uh, Nil Desperandum, you were one of our first submissions, and I believe if you were one of, if not the first, uh, story that we actually accepted, um, uh, an Occidental Book of the Dead, although it wasn't published until our fourth issue. Um so, you know, you were one of the authors who definitely got us going. So thank you for that, first of all.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I uh, Yeah, I keep an eye on uh, things like especially Duotrope, and uh, I'm always looking for places to put stuff because uh, people, if they're not writers, don't realize that it's really hard to get published, even in little semi-pro journals and stuff like that, because they get so many submissions. So I'm always looking for some place to send.
0: <laughs> so if we take a kind of a big picture of of your work, you've described these three stories, um, uh, an Occidental Book of the Dead, the Autobiography of God, and Preacher Porter's Cure, uh, as something of a trilogy, but it's certainly not a narrative trilo- trilogy. You know, this isn't the same. You know, narrative thread woven through these, but there is, you know, something of a a uniformity of ideas.
1: It's the yeah, it's it's a conformity of really metaphysics, I guess you could call it. It's a, a philosophy behind it. Um, the uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead influenced a, a lot of that work. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read that. It's uh, a, a tough read. I, I've read it a couple of times, and it's still a tough read. But um that that idea, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and Jungian psychology is behind that too. I studied some Carl Jung, I've read uh his Memory Streams, which is is really interesting. And if you if you're if you're uh, know anything about Jung or if you've ever read Memory Streams and Reflections, you'd see what I was talking about, especially with uh an occidental book of the dead. And and uh the Autobiography of God, too. Preacher Porter's Cure was a little different. I wrote that first. I wrote that back in the early 90s, mid-90s, something like that. And uh, that was actually kind of influenced by Tom Robbins. I, I was really... I'm a big Robbins fan. Whenever his book came out, I always grabbed him up and read them. And I had just read um, Half Asleep in Frog Pajamas. And I wanted to write... I had only written short fiction up until that point and uh, had very little of it published. It had had been published in a couple of places, uh, most notably in uh, Tropic, the Sunday Magazine of the Miami Herald, which was actually a pro-sale, and that kind of sparked me to, to up things a notch, and I decided to go from the shorter fiction to try and, and write a novella. And having just read... Uh, half asleep in frog pajamas, I was very influenced by Tom Robbins' turn of phrase. I mean, if you've ever read any Tom Robbins, you know that if there's anybody in the literary world that can turn a phrase, it's Tom Robbins. And I was just determined to write something uh, that, in that style of really, you know, trying to have strange turns of phrase. Uh if you think about the bowl of flaming cherry bombs when he's uh when my character is uh, drinking himself into a stupor and sure. drinking the Trader, Vic. Trader Vic's rum is traditionally used to make uh cherry's Jubilee, flaming yep. brandy. Or Tr- Trader Vic's uh flaming brandy rather. But that's what my that's what I was thinking when I wrote uh Preacher Porter and it was just like I said, it was that in that instance it was just one notch up from from writing the short fiction, I wanted to get into writing longer fiction, and uh, I wrote the I wrote the autobiography of God too before I ever wrote a novel, uh, an Occidental Book of the Dead. Uh, I wrote after I wrote my first novel, but that had my second novel was almost influenced by um, an Occidental Book of the Dead. Uh, it was kind of a, not a continuation of it, but I had ideas from it that that translated And my second novel was a is a um, fantasy novel, which is coming out this year on Doghorn Publishing, which is a British publishing company. Uh, that's called The Apprentice Journals. And I had to get a plug in for that. <laughs> oh, abs-
0: I, absolutely. We'll uh, <clears throat> be sure to link to that and. Uh keep an eye on when that comes out
1: yeah I, I have no idea they just told me they were they accepted it in 2011 and they were a little they were busy and they said that we would start that project in 2012 so uh i've i told them last time i talked to them that it was still 2011 and i said i'm like a kid kid at christmas eve waiting for 2012
0: <laughs> to get <that year. laughs> so um so if if I understood you right, then you, essentially you wrote them in the reverse order that, uh, uh, that they appear. So you yes. wrote, so is, is that intentional or?
1: I wasn't sure. You know, when I first sent you an Occidental Book of the Dead, um, I had written it not too long ago. I mean, you know, whatever you've written recently you're most enamored of. <laughs> you know, I, I like to say that I love my children all the same, but you know, the ones that are just born have a tendency to to hold my attention and I really wasn't thinking about um you doing any more of them. But, you know, when you when you enjoyed that one, what I've done is I've taken those three not, those three novellas, I always went when there were only two of them, I I collected them together and called them uh, Siamese twins. And, or, si- no, I called them Siamese novellas. But when the third one, I wrote the third one, and like I said, they were definitely all in the same vein. They definitely all have the same metaphysics behind them. And uh, when I wrote the third one, I decided Siamese triplets. And I've actually sent that out, the three of them, as a collection called Siamese triplets. And I'm hoping, you know, somebody will will buy that and, and publish it in print. But, yeah, I, uh, I wasn't really – I didn't really expect uh, – I didn't know that even that you would have accepted, you know, an Occidental Book of the Dead when I sent it to you. <laughs> but when you liked it, when you really liked it, I said, well, you know, there's two more of these. I think that's what I told you. And yep. you said, send them on. Let me have a look at them. And uh, I had a feeling – I had a feeling that you would like them because like i said they they are very similar in tone and in in i don't want to say ideology, especially now around election time, but uh, <laughs> they're in philosophy metaphysics they're 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 all same and psychology they're they're very psychological pieces, if you think about it. Uh, especially in occidental book of the dead because that's straight out of Carl Jung all the different archetypal personalities that that uh, we as individuals contain and Jung talked about those as being autonomous uh entities within our minds uh, that can that can get control you know that can that cause us you know when we do different things it's these different archetypes rising up in our consciousness That control, you know, how we react to things. Uh, Jungian psychology is. Jung and Freud were partners, but you know they they of course split up, and everybody went the way of Freud. And I thought that was just (laughs) because you know Freud, Freud was well, like I say in in the autobiography of God, he was a mammalian psychologist, whereas uh, Jung was a was a psychologist of the soul. He was much more spiritual person
0: certainly, very much so, and I, I think, as, as you mentioned, especially in an Occidental Book of the Dead, you did you know a, a wonderful job of you know fictionalizing that concept.
1: Thank you thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, when I write this when I write those, especially in an Occidental Book of the Dead, it's obviously very, very much fiction, very, very much fantasy, but at the same time, there's an aspect. There's a, 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 a lot of truth to it, and there's a, a you know, it's, a, I don't know how to put it. I, I'm trying to write a children's book right now, and I've got an aside in the children's book where I, as the author, actually talk, you know, to speak to the children. It's an authorial intrusion is what you call that. And I tell them, you know, you may think that this is all just a story and it doesn't really exist, But I didn't know anything about any of this until I started writing it, so who's to say, you know? And it's the same thing that's along those lines, you know. uh, If you understand what the Tibetan Book of the Dead is saying, when you die and if you're going through a Bardo state, if that actually exists the way the Tibetan Book of the Dead says it exists, then something like... uh, what I wrote in an Occidental Book of the Dead could very well happen, because if you've ever read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they basically tell you what you're going to go through, what you're liable to see when you die and into that bardo state. But that what you were seeing in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, of course, was through the eyes of Tibetan Buddhists, and their uh, worldview and their uh, myth- mythos, their gods, uh, whereas an Occidental man is going to see something totally different. And that was my idea, was to show what might very well happen in that Bardo state to uh, Malcolm Stark.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> well, speaking of um, uh, Malcolm Stark, the kind of the lead characters in each of your three stories, Malcolm Stark in An Occidental Book of the Dead, um uh, Shelley <laughs> in uh, The Autobiography of God and, of course, um, Myron in Preacher Porter's Cure. Of the three of those, and maybe this just might be my reading, but it feels like in um, that the character of Shelley in uh, The Autobiography of God is at least somewhat autobiographical.
1: Well, I actually used my, you know, I used my name.
2: <laughs> that's, that was In one of the first
1: clues. <laughs> right. And I did that, you know, because I feel like as a writer, uh, I can do anything that I want to do. <laughs> I mean, as a writer, that's, that's something that writers, young writers that I talk to, I have a nephew that wants to write. And I try to explain to them, when you're writing, you're God. You can do anything you want, you know. And... Don't worry about what a publisher or an editor is going to say. Uh, I think Coppola once said, when when the people you're working for are trying to fire you, you're doing your best work, you know. Because I know they tried to fire, they fired him out of The Godfather and they wanted to fire him out of Patton and all this stuff. And, and And those were the greatest movies, you know. So I tried to explain that, and I was just, at that point I just said, I want this to be an intimate piece. I want this to be, uh, and the character, I do call him Shelly at one point to kind of differentiate. It. It's not me. But it is what I might have. There are aspects of my personality for sure, and it's what I might have, have been. It's, it, it was, uh, uh I, what I did was I, I, I let my – I expanded my ego. I, I made a character, something like me, only with a much larger ego. And he, in the beginning of the story, he's, a, he's pretty much an asshole. Uh, and he doesn't really – he doesn't really um, fight that, that label either. He pretty much tells it like it is, you know. And if you notice in that story, he changes throughout that story he's he's taught very much by sophia and he says that he says well, i'm getting lessons every day and uh yeah that that character that that's basically the way i put that that was a character that i could have been had my ego been even bigger than it is <laughs> 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 i try to keep a, i try to keep a handle on that whenever uh, occasionally i'm asked for a picture they want a picture of me for a magazine i'm in or something like that and i always refuse i figure that's just that there's an ego thing i can live without you know nice. i always i always I tell them i'm far too stunning to be in the, to have my picture in their magazine <laughs> <laughs> now
0: in um uh the most recent story that we ran which as you mentioned was the first one of these that you wrote Preacher Porter's Cure I'm I'm a little there's a little trepidation in asking this question but your description of in the way you approached um, Myron's alcoholism and you know the way he gets over it the Preacher Porter's Cure, if you will, the, uh, <laughs> the title of the story here, uh, reads very realistic. Um, you know,
1: it, it's you know. a 12, it, It's basically a twelve-step cure, only uh, some of the steps are missing, but they're the they're very important steps. Um, I uh, back before I wrote that, I I used to drink a lot. And there's definitely some... If there's any autobiography in any of them, that's the one. Uh, Because I did uh, probably a year or so before I wrote that, uh, went into a 12-step program and stopped drinking. I was drinking way too much. And, uh, yeah, I... that I wanted to write a... My intention when I started that was to write a sci-fi piece. Uh, Like I said, I was... I was reading half asleep in thread pajamas, and and that's Syrians, and uh, I, I wanted to write something along those lines. I wanted to, to more explore that. He 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 vaguely touched on the Syrians that uh, they're close that Syria uh, the dog star is close to us, and I kind of wanted to expand on his idea there, and uh, it turned into what it is. Uh, that wasn't really my intention. I wanted to use the, the fact that he was, you know, quitting drinking, but I hadn't intended for it to become the theme of that story, but it did. And, uh, the, the things that Preacher Porter does are steps in a 12-step program. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't use all 12 steps, but, uh, Preacher Porter is basically, uh, He's a uh, uh, an analogy for AA. That is the best way I could put it.
0: Okay, so that that is okay. That well, again, I think you did a a wonderful job of you know, fictionalizing that and and getting that point across. It certainly comes through in the uh, uh, in the reading and well, hopefully in the listening to the story. Um. So you mentioned you I have a. Uh, you mentioned you have a novel that's been accepted. It's hopefully coming out soon. Uh, you have a you have one that's already published, I believe.
1: No, no. Actually, my first novel has never been published. I I sent it out. It's hard to get anybody to even read them. I mean, the, the the way it works is you send a synopsis and a couple of chapters, and they'll tell you if they want to read it. And the only editor I ever got to read it, that company wanted to buy it. And I didn't like the contract, and I didn't like, uh, they, the editor actually said to me, you know, we don't have the resources to promote this. And, you know, she was basically telling me, you could, you should be able to, to get this somewhere bigger than us. And I decided to just not to go with them. And I, sometimes I, I never regretted that, that idea that i you know i could have had it published but uh at the same time sometimes it crosses my mind because it's very hard i mean it's out now i've got it out to places and i some i haven't heard from in almost a year you know so who knows what they're doing (laughs) but it takes the statistics show even for a short story uh the statistics say that for every short story that is accepted by even a small magazine, it's been rejected ten times prior. So think about I mean, if each one of these places that's rejecting it has kept it for a month or two, it takes a long time. I mean I've just recently had a story published that was I don't know, twenty years old <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah, you know, I've got I've got work I've got a tremendous amount of stories I've been writing. I studied under James Dickey at the University of South Carolina, and that was back in the 70s, early and mid-70s. And I've been writing ever since, but I didn't really start trying to publish until about 2006, 7, something like that. I, did, I never really made a concerted effort. I'd occasionally send things out here and there, but it wasn't my top priority in life, and the writing was, I always kept writing. But, uh, and I didn't take rejection well. You know, I know Dickie used to say you've got a wallpaper, at least one wall, with rejection notices before you're going to get published. But I never liked that idea back then.
0: <laughs> uh, have you, Have you ever considered self-publishing, and even even as just yeah, an ebook, if not a, you know, if it, not a print-on-demand book, at least an ebook, just to get it out there, get the, uh, you know, get some name recognition, start, you know, driving, uh, driving it forward that way.
1: Yeah, I've done a little research into that i know some people that have done it it is really you have to be intensely into marketing and i'm not i'm really not you just have to sell 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 and i'm not a salesman i'm just not a salesman you know i'm hoping that when the novel comes out um you know maybe that'll spark something uh, you know every time i when i was in when i got in the uh, tropic that the Sunday Magazine and Miami Herald. I thought that would spark something, you know, and I'm, it just never did. And uh, it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. But I'm hoping that the novel again, that's The Apprentice Journals, is a fantasy novel, and it uh, it's, it's a lot of the same kind of philosophy and metaphysics, if you will, that that the the, uh, the um, As a matter of fact, like I said, uh, uh, the Occidental Book of the Dead really was an inspiration for the novel. But uh, I'm hoping that when that comes out, you know, maybe there'll be a little more. And I've been that that uh, publishing company, Doghorn Publishing. They also put out a magazine called Paludo, again out of the UK. And it's uh, twice twice a year they come out with it. It's more like an anthology, really. It's big and it's very pretty and it's got to be i mean i've been in a lot of speculative magazines and i've read a lot of speculative magazines it truly is the most cutting edge print venue that i know of i mean i just i've been in four of their issues and i just i just love being in that magazine i mean they're that's one of the best time i I tell them I, i Cherish my time that I'm in your magazine because every story in there. If you ever get a chance to read Paludo magazine, just any issue you want, grab them. And they they have an eye for great stories, and I've never seen a bad story in there.
0: Okay, well we'll definitely uh, throw up a link to that. Um, do you have a uh, website or anything with a bibliography where people can, you know, where where can I find more J. Michael Shell?
1: You can Google J. Michael Shell, and it will show you uh, Google J. Michael Shell in quotation marks, so you don't so you don't get a lot of junk. There's, there's another J. Michael Shell, but he kind of likes like writes religious stuff, and you recognize right away the difference. But uh, it'll show. Usually, it's come up pretty much most of the places I've been in. Most of the I've been in a lot of anthologies, a lot of magazines, Space and Time. Um, and a, a tremendous amount. I was in one anthology called uh, um, "Bound for Evil," which was done by Dead Letter Press, and that was that was uh, nominated for a um, Shirley Jackson Award. Not my story. The entire you know anthology. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, I don't think it won. But now Paludo Magazine won a Spectrum Fantastic Arts Award, which is a big award. And uh, like I said, there uh, they've. They used to be a quarterly magazine, and now they're, they're down to uh, twice a year. With the economy the way it is, it's tough enough on little magazines, you know, little venues like that, even when the economy's good. So with things bad, they, they're they struggling. I can't tell you how many I've been in. Even Tropic, the Sunday Magazine, the Miami Herald, which was uh, um, Dave Barry's home, Paper, a home magazine, and uh, Carl Hyacinth used to be in there all the time. And as soon as the Miami Herald started having financial problems, the first thing to go was the artsy section. You know that. So, you know they didn't get rid of the business section. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us.
1: Well, it was sure a pleasure. I don't get to. This is actually the first. I've ever been interviewed, so I'm, I'm taking it as a momentous occasion trying to tamp down the ego and <laughs> I'll, I'll look forward to hearing it and uh, be sure to tell my friends to listen to it. I've told quite a few people that they should get on. I know I know people that uh, listen to audiobooks all the time and uh, I've told them, I don't know if they're doing it, but I've told them to, to download your stories and stick them in their mp3s.
0: Well, I certainly appreciate the, uh, the publicity Publicity. Um, So we'll definitely look for your novel and uh, keep in touch. Let us know how things are going. Well, thanks for
1: calling, Jim. It was good talking to you.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Next up is our main fiction. War, by Sandra Jensen. Sandra Jensen was born in South Africa, and she presently lives in Ireland with her partner and her cat. Her work has been published in Word Riot, Southwester, AGNI, and others. She is a finalist in the 2010 Bridport Prize, and has received honorable mentions in the Fiddleheads 2011 Literary Contest and Glimmer Train Press's Family Matters, Very Short Fiction and Open Fiction Competitions. Recently, she won Red Room's Scandalously Short Story Contest. Her short story manuscript, A Sort of Walking Miracle, was shortlisted for the Scott Prize from Salt Publishing. In 2010, she was awarded a professional writer's grant from the Canada Council for the Arts to develop her novella, Tell Me in Tamil, into a novel. She also won the J.G. Farrell Award in 2011 for Best Novel in Progress. Our narrator is Miss Angie Kohler.
2: War by Sandra Jensen Apart from religion, school was torture. Lines of white chalk scraping into my head. I sat at the back where on good days I could see Hilbro Tower out the window piercing Johannesburg's sky like a pin. Today was a crappy day and I didn't care if I could see it or not. We had netball later and I hated netball. Miss Hadley was telling us about the Boer War. I hated the Boer War. I wish we had religion. It was the only subject I was good at. I felt fidgety. I wanted to go home, but my brother Mark wouldn't be home yet, and my mother's boyfriend Louis might be there. I practiced my peripheral vision and stared at the blackboard and the window at the same time. I tried to look like I was concentrating on the war. In the corner of my eye I saw the tip of the tower, winking at me. Winking was a sin. I crossed my legs, and I tried to listen to Miss Hadley, but all I could feel was the warm place between my legs. Think about something else, I told myself. Hillbro Tower is the tallest freestanding structure in Africa, Mark had said, sounding like he built it himself. I wondered if the tower was a cheat. That long pen making all the difference. I tried to remember exactly how high it was. I couldn't. My head was stuffed full of other things. Pretoria had surrendered and thousands of boars were dying of horrible diseases. I put on a sad face, but Miss Hadley wasn't looking. My thighs were slippy with sweat. I slid my hands between them. The Boers finally met with Kirchner in Klerksdorp. Thank God we didn't live there. We lived in Randburg, surrounded by square houses, bougainvillea bushes, and nail-clipped lawns. Black servant women wore white aprons and white hats and smiley faces, and black men in overalls raked the short grass gently like it was hair. Alsatian dogs barked behind Beware the Dog Signs, Persian cats patted around their room that smelled of Wendelin and sunlight soap. Our house didn't have a cat or a dog, not any more. I had a dog once. His name was Bottle. A picture of Bottle with his broken back fell into my head before I could stop it. Anyway, our house needed renovating, like all the other houses my mother bought. She did a lot of renovating. This one had an empty swimming pool in the back, and an empty aviary in the front, as big as the servants' quarters. Who on earth would want to keep birds in this country? My mother had asked the estate agent. I secretly hoped we might. Everything was going horribly wrong with the war. Boer Commandos' wives and children were sent to the concentration camps. Food, bullets, and hope were nowhere to be found. The Bushveld Carponeers shot eight Boer POWs and a reverend. I wanted to tear my clothes off. I was stuffed into green flannel panties and knee-high white socks that left ridges down my calves. Everything itched. I timed how long I could stare at Miss Hadley, and not blink. I gave up after three minutes. "'No staying power,' Grandma Pie said. She was right. I'd have surrendered ages ago. Or been thrown out for lowering grooming standards. I'd dribbled Fanta down the front of my pinafore at break. My pinafore was the same color as my face. I felt pretty until I looked in the mirror piggy eyes stared back at me my eyelashes stuck together in clumps i had beige hair we were in the middle of the treaty of foreign i put my textbook on my lap drew up my pinafore slowly and put my right hand down my panties my forefinger found the place it moved up and down secretly silently while the treaty went on and on I wondered what radio programs the tower was transmitting, and then I wasn't wondering anything at all. My finger going faster and faster, and then I was too close. I couldn't be sure I did not cry out. Jan Smuts had finally got everyone to sign, so I put my hand up. Kimberly? May I go to the toilet? Can you wait until the bell? It hurts bad, miss. All right, then, and go to sick bay and see nurse. I finished off in the toilet cubicle, holding myself apart, rubbing the swelling in the middle with my finger, flushing the toilet to cover the sound of my breathing, until the sharp flood pierced through me, rising up like a burst tap, until my head filled up with purple, and for a moment I was not me. For a moment I felt good, and then it was over and then I felt very bad I washed my hands I didn't look in the mirror I knew what I'd see nurse put the thermometer in my mouth five minutes she said in a flat african's accent I stared at her bottom while she fussed over pointy instruments and a bottle of detal. my tongue searched for the tip of the thermometer licked it hard "'Fast, faster. "'Mark had told me how to make fire. "'Rubbing two sticks together until he gave up, "'his face wrung out with the effort, "'mouth turned down. "'I picked up one of the sticks. "'There was a brown, slightly burned-looking bit. "'Look,' I said, it worked. "'Mark smiled, stood up, "'breathed into his chest, and said, "'It's time to finish the war.' I played the Germans, he played the English. It didn't matter, so long as he wanted me to be there. I'd have been Hitler if he asked. We never played wars. Stupid war, Mark said. Nurse peered at the thermometer. Quite normal. What's wrong? Too much sun? I couldn't look her in the eye, so I looked at the shiny badge pinned to her bosom. Nurse Klingelhofer she was new. Nurse Franks had left. The other girls whispered, Fallen woman! Hands over their mouths, giggling. Eyes sliding past me like screen doors. Fallen where? I wondered. I saw bruised knees, bleeding shins. I hoped she'd be alright. Hoped she would come back and hug me like last time. Stomach hurt? I shook my head. Headache? No, I mouthed. Well, it has to be something. Girl, are you sick or are you not? I nodded. Well, I'll give you a note. You need to eat more meat. Tell your mother I said so. Spinach, broccoli, cabbage. You missuses are too picky. Think you're little ladies. pecking at your food like a bird. You have to eat meat. Tell your mother to get the girl to fry you some liver. You're probably anemic. You know what that is? I shook my head. Of course not. I'm going to tell you. Not enough iron. You're a flabby type. The dreamy ones never make it in this life. Do you hear me? Forget your homework, do you? I shook my head. I always did my homework. Are you lying to me now? I shook my head again. Cat got your tongue? I looked at my feet, white sock-covered flesh pressed against the brown straps. I wanted to run all the way home and kick my shoes off. I wanted to pull my scratchy panties down, scrape away my inside stuff before it turned white like dried snot. I'd hide the panties under the mattress, shut myself in my room, climb under the cool sheets with my new radio, and listen to the Avengers. I'd wait until Mark came home, and we'd finish the war. Only I didn't want the war to be finished, because he'd call up Elliot, and they'd go off and do boy things with microscopes and catapults. I could play with them if I put an orange on my head for target practice. I wouldn't do that, but I let Mark prick my finger with a needle and smear the blood on a slide. "'It's very bad blood,' Elliot said." peering into the microscope. "'Does your father know you're a liar?' nurse asked. "'No,' I said. "'He's dead.' "'Well, we've all got troubles, you know,' she said, handing me the note. I walked home feeling lighter with each step. "'Mummy will be home. I'll put on my bathing suit and climb into the pool. I liked it down there, all hollow and echoey,' blue paint peeling off the walls and a plug hole as big as my hand. My mother promised she'd fill it. I would dived to the bottom like Mark showed me when we were on holiday with Grandma Pie and Lewis in Mossel Bay, where little silverfish tickled my legs. My ears pounded. Pictures tried to get inside my head, but I wouldn't let them. I walked like I had a book on my head, straight like a soldier counting one two three a short step to miss the cracks one two three to the house on the end the one with the empty swimming pool at the back the one with the aviary in the front no birds not one Lewis took Bottle in the boat Mark was there too but Lewis should have known he's he's an adult the propeller shaft caught Bottle's tail he took three days to die To make me feel better, Louis took us to the Kango Caves. I had wanted to go. I love stalactites and stalagmites. Mark wanted to see King Arthur's throne and the hairy mammoth elephant. I wanted to see the biblical section. My mother said it was all right. She even let Louis take her car. The caves were dark and clammy. Mark went off on his own. After Lewis and I saw the pulpit, we had to squish together to get to the rainbow chamber to see the family Bible. That's when Lewis showed me a little square full packet that had a balloon inside, only it wasn't a balloon. His breast smelled of cigarettes. I stared at the outstretched lost wing of an angel. Afterward, he said, ''Let's keep this our secret, okay?'' I said, ''Okay.'' My heart thumping, my head counting, one, two, three, all the way back to the car, where I sat in the back, even though Mark said I could sit up front. I counted until I got home, to safety, away from Louis, away to Mummy and Grandma Pie, who told me I was playing. What a pity. The book hasn't fallen. I'm not stepping on the cracks. I'm wondering if God exists. I'm speaking to you, God. If you really exist, you'll give me a castle with a moat and everything. I'll count to ten. I'll slow down, give you more time. Maybe a castle's too hard. Too late, I've asked now, wasting his time. It's not going to happen. I already know it's okay, that he's he won't do it. Maybe some other time. Nine, ten, I knew you wouldn't. I've sinned. I promise I won't do it again. Cross my heart and hope to die. My panties chafed the inside of my thigh as I walked, saying, yes you will. You can't help yourself. You're nothing but a fucking whore. I ran the last bit, shut my mother's handmade gate behind me with a clang. I was home. Friday, a whole weekend with no homework. I'd be Hitler and let Mark shoot me in the heart. That would make him happy, and then maybe he'd take me exploring tomorrow. Maybe we could climb up Observatory Ridge. I felt I was going to fly right out of my chest, up and up and up. Then I remembered. Tomorrow was Elliot's birthday. I sank down fast, falling like a frog, Flop. My socks rucked around my ankles. My bag thumped on the stoop. A ballpoint pen rolled off the step. Plop. I hated Elliot's house. Dark wooden old chairs and the colored maid silently pouring milk. The room smelled like Grandma Pie's boiled vegetables. I'd swallow down my milk and put the empty glass on the table. Covered with white lace tablecloth, a little pink shepherdess sitting in the middle, minding her sheep. Don't touch out out, Elliot's mother went telling me to go play somewhere else, but Elliot and Mark wouldn't want to play with me, and I didn't want to play with Wendy Elliot's sister. There'd be no one else; we were their only friends. Wendy made me play dress-up in her clothes. I wouldn't go. I'd stay home. That felt even worse than going. Tomorrow may never come, Grandma pa always said. I pulled my socks and shoes off and went round back to see if my mother was in the garage. Mummy, I called. The garage was empty, cold concrete underneath my feet. A pile of two by fours at the back window glass stacked behind. The blackened decker lay on its side next to the drill bits in a jam jar. The Hilti gun was aimed at me. I breathed in the hot metal smell, smell of my mother, and something else, a smell of rotten eggs, sulfuric acid. She used it to make her metal sculpture be careful don't touch ever she told me and I knew what would happen if I did because I saw the melted bit of her thumb where Lewis had pressed it in the acid he cried after that he held me so hard I thought I'd break then he thumped his fist into the wall behind my pillow look at what your mother made me do he wept nursing his fist, my mother sitting on the edge of my bed, smoking in the half-dark. I hoped she'd come and hug me and make him go away, but she didn't. She just sat there. A dot of red moved back and forth, back and forth, and then she got up and said, All right, sweetie. I tried to answer with my eyes because my voice had mutinied. She took Lewis by the arm, and shut the door behind them. I lay down, put the pillow over my head, and stuck my fingers in my ears. I went closer to the acid bath. Something floated inside. I'm not going to look, I told myself, but I did anyway. A frog on its back, its little frog tummy, nothing but a green hole. I stared at it a moment, started to count, one, two, three, maybe I should have asked God for something easier, a bicycle maybe. I turned and ran into the hot, hammering down sunlight. I'd go to the sand pit. It was a proper sand pit, not like the empty swimming pool. I never went into the swimming pool alone, in case the water came in and I couldn't get out. I'd finished the castle I started yesterday. Mark wouldn't help. He said sand pits were for babies. He'd dig for red ants nearby and pretend not to be interested. The sand was always cool. I'd shove my feet in, sit Barbie in the middle, Kim by her side, and then... No, I wouldn't. I promise. I'll be good. I wanted that bicycle. Wendy started it. She undressed Barbie, pressed her against Ken. "'Do you know what they're doing?' she asked, her thumb stroking Ken's flat plastic bottom. I pretended I didn't know. I pretended I wanted to put her horrible clothes on while she stared at me and told me to take everything off, but I didn't. "'It's naughty,' I said. She looked away. I heard the noise first, like crying, like a dog dying, like someone hurting. I couldn't see them, but I knew it was Lewis and my mother. They were behind the tree I talked to when God wasn't listening. I held my breath. My shoulders pushed up, my fingernails dug in. I tried to slide in between the sounds. Were they hitting each other, or was it the other? I couldn't stand the other. His thing inside her, squish, squish, like someone walking in the mud. I listened. I couldn't help it. I was solid like March 10 soldiers. I was an officer of the bushvelt Carbineers, standing in a row, waiting to be shot. I was the Reverend Killer, Breaker Mornet wondering if Kirchner would come to my rescue. He didn't. The words told me which it was. They were always the same, just sometimes in a different order. More, faster, more, harder, yes. Squish, squish. It was quiet for a bit, and then I heard the sound of breathing, like someone running for their life. You bitch, you cunt, you fucking whore. Say it again, my mother said, and he did. My heart beat so loudly, I couldn't hear myself count. I turned around, made myself invisible, my back impervious, a shield, a broken crack underneath, stepped on already. I was too late. I missed it, and then I was inside, in my room, the door shut. Underneath the sheets, my radio turned loud, waiting until Mark came home to play war.
0: Next up, as promised, Mr. Adam Gauntlet returns with another installment from his bookshelf, this time discussing the crime fiction of Chester Himes.
3: Hello, and welcome to the bookshelf. This time I want to talk to you about urban crime fiction, the Harlem detective novels by Chester Himes. I first became interested in these in the early 1990s, when they were being reprinted by Random House, and my editions are from their vintage crime series. There are Kindle versions, and there have been three movies Cotton Comes to Harlem, Come Back Charleston Blue, and A Rage in Harlem. Each features Himes' detective characters, Coffin Ed and Gravedigger Jones, implacable enforcers of the law, who battle against a range of crooks that are just as vicious and determined as they are, but not as tough. Himes was born in Missouri in 1909, the son of a college professor of industrial trades and a teacher. Race, prejudice, and personal misfortune shaped his early years, and when he was 19, he was sentenced to a 20-25 to year term of imprisonment in Ohio for his part in an armed robbery. He took up writing and published his first stories in the 1930s while he was an inmate. Eventually he was released into his mother's care in 1936 and took up writing as a career. He lived for a time in Los Angeles, but the corrosive racial prejudice he encountered there scarred him. It culminated in a short stint as screenwriter for Warner Brothers, terminated by Jack Warner himself, who said, I don't want no goddamn niggers on this lot. Shortly thereafter, Himes left America for good, settling at first in Paris, where he lived for many years, before moving to Spain, where he spent the remainder of his life. His detectives live and work in Harlem, New York, and spend their lives keeping the lid on a boiling cauldron of rage and spite. Their violent crusade is the only thing keeping the vice and violence from overflowing, and sometimes, as happens in Blind Man with a Pistol, even their brand of ultraviolence isn't enough to keep the peace. Ostensibly, the series is set in the 1960s, the decade of civil rights in Vietnam, which is when most of the novels were published. However, at times, the setting and characters feel slightly antique, as though Heims are writing about the harm of the 1930s, which Given the circumstances, isn't all that surprising. An expatriate in Paris getting all his news second hand is bound to rely on his bygone personal recollections to some degree, and the 1930s and early 40s were the last years Heim spent any length of time in America. Each tale is intricate, with double and triple crosses, con games, killers, woman crazy suckers, mobsters, and citizens infesting the narrative like rats in a rackety tenement house. The stories are character-driven, and Himes is very good at bouncing disparate characters off each other, seeing how they react, and then taking the story in that direction. Coffinette and Digger Jones are the ones who have to clean up the mess, and the two world-weary men do it as best they can, though they don't care too much who gets hurt along the way. Consider this from Blind Man with a Pistol. A bare-headed white man had materialized suddenly from the darkness and the dim, Pool of yellow light spilling from a street lamp, trying to run in the direction taken by the black man. But he staggered on wobbly legs as though drunk. They could see his legs plainly because he didn't wear any pants. In fact, he didn't wear any underpants either, and they could see his bare white ass beneath his white shirt tail. Gravedigger switched on the headlamps, and in the next instant he stepped on the accelerator. The car pulled to the curb behind the staggering man with a scream of tires on the pavement and both big double jointed detectives emerged from opposite sides of the car like hobos alighting from a moving freight. For an instant, there was only the sound of flat feet slapping on concrete as they converged on the tottering white man from fore and aft. Coming up from the front side, grave gravedigger drew his torch. It was a rapid, dangerous-looking motion until the light hit the white man's face. The gravedigger drew up sharp. Ed coming out from the rear, pinioned the white man's arms hold him steady gravedigger said fishing out the shield and turning his torch on it we're policemen you're safe even while he was saying it he thought it was a stupid thing to say the front of the white man's shirt was covered with blood more blood spurted from his throat where his jugular had been cut now pros and cons Pro 1. This is very sensual, cinematic writing. It's probably no accident, since Himes worked in Hollywood during the Pelpin Noir years, and was in Paris when filmmakers like Jules Dassin, uh, Henry-Georges Clouzot, and Jean-Pierre Melville were reinventing Noir for French audiences. Consider the passage above. It's all about noises, the sound of flat feet, imagery, staggering as though drunk, stark light and shadow. Himes doesn't waste his time describing the street, or the shop windows, or even the car, Coffinhead and Digger Jones are driving. The action is the point, and Himes gets the reader there as quickly as possible, describing everything efficiently. Pro 2. Himes is a writer who relies on character rather than set-piece scenes to get things done, and he has a very sure touch when it comes to characterization. Even though few words are spent on each, by the end of the novel you'll feel as if you knew all these people personally, and probably sympathize with many of them. A pro 3. Crime dramas are often judged on their realism, and each of these stories feel as real as it is possible to be. Himes is a good judge of what makes a scheme tick, from elaborate con games to syndicate gambling rings, and can make a murder scene as if it's happening right in front of you. A con 1. The setting and characters won't suit every reader, and the exploitation genre that started the 1970s has slightly muddied the waters to the point that many go into this kind of story, I rather suspect, thinking it's going to be a satire rather than played straight. Coffin Ed isn't Jefferson Twilight, but Jefferson Twilight has probably made it more difficult to appreciate Coffin Ed on too, The plots are labyrinthine, and it can sometimes feel as though you don't understand the half of it, even though you've read the last page. That's something I find attractive, to be honest, as it makes me think. But not everyone comes to crime fiction to be puzzled, some like clear-cut solutions to the mystery, and you don't always get that with Himes. If nothing else I've said about the series intrigues you, then let me leave you with this. You'll never find a better example of noir fiction. Himes has been compared to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, but at his best, he can be better than both. That's it from me. Bye-bye.
0: So that's it. Number 28, Put to Bed. Thank you once again for joining us. If you have enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories.com to make a donation and leave a comment. All the money collected goes to pay our authors. And we can definitely use your help. No Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Editor and Publisher is Jim Phillips.